Welcome, folks. Grab a seat. Uh, happy Christmas, Neely. Hope you're having a good December. Uh, and uh, the, big, the big day is coming. Big, big day is coming. Now, this, this year has been a, a moment where we've had an election close to Christmas. That hasn't happened since way back in 1923, when there was a, a kind of election time at the same time as Christmas. But actually, it's quite apt, because if you go right back 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was born, the political situation into which Jesus was born played huge factors. Uh, the, the, the politics of the day and Jesus' coming kind of it's an amazing parallel, and I'm going to talk to you about that this evening. My title is Hope Beyond uh, Politics. <laughs> uh, so whatever you voted, you will have hope at the end of tonight. That's the plan. Um, so you imagine the Roman Empire with its incredible infrastructure and its might, military power, and its finances, and its incredible abilities— and then you had this Jesus born in an, in an agricultural setting, laid in an animal's feeding trough, um, kind of born into poverty, had a motley crew of followers. You know, if you were, gonna, if you were a gambler 2,000 years ago and you were going to place your bets between the Roman Empire and this Jesus who had a motley crowd, crowd of followers, which one's going to last the next 2,000 years? I know where you'd have placed your bets. You'd have said the Roman Empire. And yet here we are 2,000 years on, and uh, we're calling our kids Mary and Peter and Paul, but we're calling our dogs Nero and Caesar. So I have to tell you, Jesus won slam dunk. He won. So let me take you back to the, the, the story of Christmas, and it starts with a political statement. It says, in, the days, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And I'll come back to that in a few moments. This is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor over Syria. Syria, And everyone went to the town, their own town, to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David's, because he belonged to the house and line of David's. He went there to register with Mary, who, who, he was, pledged to be married, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, watching over the flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord's, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace with, to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Isn't that incredible? So Christmas happened at a particular time in a particular situation, and, it, and the scene is set for us politically in the ver first verse we read, and it says, verse, Luke chapter 2 verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken 
in the entire Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was filled with discouraged, dispirited, and confused people. Years of war had left people demoralized because of all the destruction and turmoil that was going on on earth. Rome was vicious. Rome's dominant. Rome was mega. Rome had overthrown 46 nations. The Roman Empire now spread from uh, in the north, England, uh, all the way to Morocco in the south, and to Iraq in the east. All of the north of Africa was dominated by the Roman Empire. All the regions around the Mediterranean Sea, all the way over to Kuwait and Iran and Syria and Lebanon, all these areas were dominated by the Roman Empire. It was literally the entire known world at the time was the Roman Empire, 46 nations. 70 million people lived under this dominant rule of Rome. Each of the nations that had been overthrown had their national gods, pagan gods, false deities that they worshipped. And whenever a nation was overthrown, it was believed that their deity had failed them or had abandoned them. And so not only had the, the, the people experienced being conquered by this Roman Empire, but it's, in effect, they had not only conquered the peoples, but they'd also conquered their gods. And so the Roman Empire had left people discouraged and confused. It was from this place of dominance that Caesar Augustus made a declaration about himself. And the declaration Caesar Augustus made about himself was a title. He'd called himself Savior of the World. Isn't that interesting, considering the birth of the true Savior of the world that we celebrate at Christmas? Caesar Augustus had declared himself Savior of the world. He was going to save the world through brilliant politics, careful administration, powerful military prowess, excellent economics, and the strong Roman culture that went with all. See, the Romans were the cultural innovators of the day. They were the educators. They were the inventors. They were the architects. They were the world builders. And from this place of dominance, he declared himself to be the savior of the world and conquered peoples. Conquered peoples and conquered nations were told to forget their gods and instead to depend on Rome and the emperor as their new deity, as their new savior. That was the world into which Jesus came. Now, the truth is the true savior of the world had been born at Christmas. That's what we celebrate. Today, just like back then, 2,000 years ago, our society, our culture has abandoned its gods and has turned to secular and political solutions. Britain used to be known as a Christian country, and it's moved away from spirituality. And to be honest, the version of Christianity that so often it was presented with wasn't the real deal anyway. It was kind of a nominal, religiously watered-down version of Christianity. And it was the kind of the done thing, just people went to church. Didn't mean they knew God or had a heart transformation. It was just they were going through the motions. I was born as a Christian. I was christened as a kid and had no encounter with the real gods. And as a result, they rejected Christianity. But in doing so, they were rejecting a wrong version of Christianity, which I'm okay with. And then they swung towards and said, looking because we need to fill our hearts with something, to look to the secular agenda and to science and to politics as the ultimate answers. So just like way back 2,000 years ago, our world has almost turned to the false saviors that are on offer, but it leaves an utter hollowness in people's souls. Albert Einstein, 
famous uh, physicist in his day, one of the most famous minds of all time. He was in a train one day, and as he was sitting in the carriage, the conductor came down through the train asking for people's tickets. He came to the fam- famous Albert Einstein, and Albert Einstein said, my ticket, and he went in his coat pocket, it wasn't there, had a rummage around his briefcase, it wasn't there, looked under his seat, he said, I'm, I'm, and the conductor said, listen, Mr. Einstein, you're famous, I know who you are, everyone in this coach knows who you are, I trust you, if you say you had a, you've got a ticket, I trust you've got a ticket, don't worry about it, and Mr. Einstein smiled appreciatively, and then the, the, the train conductor continued down the coach, and he started taking everyone else's tickets. He got to the end of the coach and looked back, and he could still see Albert Einstein rummaging under his seat, trying to find his ticket. And so he thought, he doesn't need to do that. And he ran back to Mr. Einstein and said, Mr. Einstein, I know who you are. You don't need a ticket. I trust you. And Albert Einstein turned to the man and said, sir, I also know who I am. My problem is I don't know where I'm going. I need my ticket to tell me my destination. I don't know where I'm going. And that's, that's a society we're living in. People just, they don't know where they're going. It's, this is a secular agenda that has replaced a faith agenda, leaves people with a sense of emptiness. Um, my friends, just, just yesterday, I, I, another friend had passed away, and he, a humanist did his funeral. And, it's, and while they give nice words and words of hope, they don't give, or, or nice words, they certainly don't give words of hope. They don't give words of any substance that give you some concrete assurance that beyond this life there's anything. But actually, there is so much more than this life. There is huge amounts more than just this physical flesh and blood realm. You are an eternal being created in the very image of God. Society has not prepared you to live. Billy Graham told a story one day when he was speaking in a, a college campus, and he told the story of a girl who'd been fatally injured in a car accident. And as she was lying, dying from her injuries in her mother's arms, her last words to her mother were this, mother, you taught me everything I needed to know how to get by in college. You taught me how to light my cigarette. You told me how to hold my cocktail class. You, you, you taught me how to have safe intercourse. But mother, you never taught me how to die. You better teach me quickly, mother, because I'm dying. And that's society. We're not teaching people the most important things, how to know God, how to live a spiritual relationship with God, how to face eternity. In Rome, they have, if you've been to visit Rome, there's the famous Pantheon, which is this amazing piece of architecture. It's this circular building. And in the, it, uh, high up in the Pantheon, you see these, there are these alcoves all around the Pantheon. And Pantheon literally means pan is all, and theon means gods. It means the house of all gods. And what happened was, as Rome conquered nations, they would take an image of the conquered god, and they would place it in the Pantheon. In each one of these alcoves, there would be gods in each one of the alcoves all around this Pantheon, house of all gods, uh, representing the nations within their empire. In one sense, Rome was trying to say, we're trying to be inclusive of all your religions, but you need to acknowledge the Caesar and the emperor as ultimate lord and source and divine being. That's, that, that was what they were saying. But when they came to Christianity, they offered the Christians an alcove to have a statue of Jesus. 
and the Christians declines to have a statue of Jesus. Today, the Pantheon is owned by the church and there are no statues of gods. There's only one statue in the whole place and it's a statue of Jesus Christ. The gods of this world will come and go. The false gods and the false securities people put their hopes on will come and go. But Jesus Christ stands the test of time. He stands out as the ultimate savior. Uh, Augustus claimed the title savior of the world. Jesus' name means, Jesus means God our savior. That wasn't just his title. It's who he is. He is God, our savior, the only savior. Going back to history, Caesar Augustus there was a move at the time in 9 BC to change the world's calendar to beginning its date from the birth of Caesar Augustus. That it would literally reset the world's calendar so that from the date that Caesar Augustus was born, that would be the date from which everyone would date their calendar from then on. But here we are living in 2019, and it's not 2019 years since Caesar Augustus. It's 2019 A.D., not B.C.E., A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. The calendar was reset with the birth of Jesus Christ, a child born in obscurity, relatively speaking. And yet, this Caesar thought he was the one calling the shots. The truth is, Jesus is the very center of human history. The Time magazine calls him the man of the millennium. H.G. Wells, the famous British author, he said this about Jesus— He says, I am an historian. I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is very easily the most dominant figure in all history. And Jesus, when you look at him, his qualifications weren't that impressive. Didn't receive any formal education, never went to college or university, never wrote a book or any articles, and yet in spite of this, more songs have been written about him, more books written about him, more articles written about him, more, more paintings painted of him than any other person who's ever lived. His life on earth lasted a brief 33 years, and in three years of those 33 years was his ministry, just three years. And yet in those three years, he's impacted the world more than anyone else has, even given their entire lifespan, more than anyone else has. His words, even today, are held in highest regard. His book, his biography, his autobiography, the Bible, is the world's all-time bestseller. His teaching has inspired the birthing of aid organizations, legal systems, about abolition of slavery, care for uh, the poor, care for the elderly, care for widows and orphans globally, orphanages birthed all over the place based on the teachings of Jesus, healthcare systems, education systems based on the teachings of Jesus. The historian Philip Scarf said this, this Jesus of Nazareth without money or arms conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on the things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life, such as never have been spoken before or since, and produced such effects, which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished the themes of more sermons, orations, discussions, 
learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. It's true. Jesus Christ is the center of history. He reset the calendar. He's the very center of it all. It was Christmas Eve, and there was a, a woman desperately searching in a supermarket, looking among the last remaining turkeys for a really, really big turkey. But there was no really, really big turkeys. So she was rummaging, kept looking, kept looking. Eventually, in desperation, she calls over the, the shop assistant and it says, excuse me, sir, uh, do these turkeys get any bigger? And he replied, no, they're dead. <laughs> Listen, Caesar's gone. His kingdom has ended. But Jesus Christ isn't dead. His kingdom is constantly expanding, constantly growing. Of the increase of his government and peace, there is no end. Every day on planet Earth, research has shown 100,000 people commit themselves to becoming followers of Jesus. Every week on planet Earth, 4,000 new churches, 4,500 new churches are established according to the research carried out by Barrett and Johnson. Jesus is the center of history. Augustus, Caesar Augustus also declared an era, and he called the era Pax Romana, which means peace in Rome. And it was an unprecedented peace. The peace lasted from 27 BC all the way through to 180 AD, 200 years of relative peace. And it was peaceful because Rome crushed all opponents and refused any uprisings. So it wasn't peace based on people's willingness. It was peace based on a dictatorship. And it brought economic prosperity all the way through the empire for 200 years. But the true peace was born at Christmas. The angel declared, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Jesus it was prophesied in Isaiah, would be the prince of peace. He came to bring peace. And yet, it is shown in all recorded history, according to the Personnel Journal, it revealed that since the beginning of recorded history, the entire world has been at peace less than 8% of the time. There's, there really isn't much peace on earth. Neil Ferguson, in his book, The War of the Worlds, stated that between 1945 and 1983, around 20 million people were killed in around hundreds major conflicts on earth. So there isn't really much peace. So you have to ask, well, pff, where's this peace that Jesus, this prince, has come to bring? There was a, a believer who had a friend who, his, whose friend was a backslidden believer, you could call him, a lapsed convert. He no longer, he used to go to church, he stopped going to church. And this guy was a businessman and he owned a soap company. And this, they were out for a walk together, the believer and this lapsed convert. And they were out for a walk together. And, and the believer was trying to encourage him to think again about faith. And the guy was saying, listen, I've, give, I've given up on all that. Uh, you know, this world has had religion for thousands of years and yet the world is no better. In fact, things are just getting worse and worse. And he said, I, I, I don't go to church. I consider myself probably an atheist these days. Uh, just, I've just, religion doesn't work. And as they were walking along, they passed a bunch of kids who were mucking around and playing, and they were sliding down a, a muddy slope, and they were absolutely caked and covered in dirt and mud. And he turned to his friend who owned the soap company, 
And he said, look at those kids. Look at all the dirt on those kids. He said, I no longer believe in soap. He said to his friend who owned the soap company. And he said, oh, you can't say that. It, soap works. It's just that they haven't applied it. And he said, well, it's exactly the same with the faith in God. You see, true faith works. Faith in Jesus will bring peace in your soul. The peace that Jesus came to bring wasn't some imposed dictation, dictator peace like in Rome where the peace is applied from the outside, yet there's no peace on the inside. The peace that Jesus came to bring is a peace that you can know on the inside by the rule of Jesus in your soul. It says in Colossians chapter 1, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything and he and was uh, before anything was created and is supreme over all creation through him god created everything everything was created through him and for him you know you were created for jesus you're wondering why am i here for jesus through him god reconciles everything to himself he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Peace has come if you want to receive it. And it's come at a very high price. Christ's blood on the cross was shed not to give you some superficial peace, but to give you the depth of peace that will give you a robustness to face anything that life can throw at you. A depth of peace, forgiveness of your sins, the ultimate peace peace with God, a relationship with your creator, restored into that relationship through the forgiveness of your sins, through his death and resurrection. What a God, what a savior, what a plan. You see, as part of Caesar Augustus implementing this new order and bringing the whole world to worship at his feet, Caesar ordered a census to be taken that he would know all the nations that were under his rule and who was under his jurisdiction. This was part of his plan. This was part of, the census was part of this new order. The census was part of knowing and bringing the nations to bow before this Caesar. And so Caesar leaps from the pages of history into the pages of the Bible. And we read, as we read earlier, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman, Empire, entire Roman world. Caesar was pulling the strings, looked like Caesar was in control. But unwittingly, he was actually accomplishing the plan of the ultimate sovereign in his own little dictatorship. He was actually ultimately implementing the plan of the ultimate awesome sovereign God. It's incredible. You see, God had spoken years before through the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The prediction was that the ultimate ruler would be born in Bethlehem. And Caesar, trying to establish global worship of himself, implements a census, which takes a poor couple, Mary and Joseph, and brings them to Bethlehem so that the Messiah could come into the world and fulfill 
the purpose of God, the ultimate purpose of the ultimate sovereign. Isn't that amazing? God used Caesar to accomplish his purpose, and God used corrupt Judas, and God used the jealousy of the Pharisees, and God used the insecurity of Pilate to allow the crucifixion of Christ to happen, and God used that terrible evil to accomplish the greatest good on earth, the salvation of your souls. And ever since then, God's been working and using circumstances that are adverse. And I have to tell you today, whatever you think of Brexit, or whatever you think of the SNP, or, or of Boris Johnson, or of the demise of the Labour Party, or the struggling Liberal Democrats, whatever you think, I assure you, God will accomplish His purpose in Europe, in Scotland, and in the United Kingdom through the circumstance we find ourselves in. Whether it's personally what we all like or not, God will accomplish a sovereign plan. He never has not accomplished a sovereign plan. And these are days where God is on His throne, He's ruling and reigning, and it's going to be just fine. There was a king in Africa who had a faithful servant who was a very positive mentality kind of guy. He, whenever, whenever he went through a situation, whether it was good or bad, he would always remark, this is good. One day, the king and his servant were out hunting, and the servant's responsibility was to load his gun and pass it to the king. For some reason, the servant hadn't done this properly, and after taking a shot, the king's thumb was blown off. The king was furious, turned to the servant and said, what have you done? And the servant said, king, this is good. The king was even more furious and sentenced to be three years in prison. And he put the servant in prison, and he didn't see him for three years. Anyway, on another hunting trip, the king was in a, in a bit of a hostile territory. He didn't realize the danger he was in, and he was captured by cannibals. And they tied him up hand and foot. They tied him to a stake and put firewood underneath him. And they were about to light the fire when they came close, and they noticed that what, his thumb was missing from his right hand. The cannibals were very suspicious, superstitious bunch of people. They would never eat someone who wasn't whole. So they released him on, the condition, on, the, on account of him not having a thumb. As he was reflecting on this and returning back to his kingdom, he was thinking how sad he was that he'd imprisoned that servant. And he said, actually, it was good that I lost my thumb because if I hadn't lost my thumb, I would have been eaten alive by those cannibals. So he went to the prison and he said, I'm so sorry for uh, imprisoning you because, and he told him the whole story about the cannibals. And he said, and if, if I hadn't lost my thumb, um, I, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be alive today. And so he said, I'm so sorry I had to put you in prison for three years. And the servant said, no, no, it is good that you put me in prison for three years. I said, how on earth is it good that I could be put you in prison for three years? And he said, no, no, if I hadn't been in prison, I would have been with you in the hunting party. And I am whole. <laughs> it is good. <laughs> you see, God is an amazing God. No matter how evil the circumstances of your life may seem, God doesn't author everything you go through. But God, the ultimate author, can orchestrate even the worst situations you face to your advantage and to His glory. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. You're part of God's plan. You're part of God's plan. The question is, what side of history are you on? Caesar was part of God's plan. 
He was on the wrong side of history, though. And Mary and Joseph were part of God's plan. And they were on the right side of history. You are part of God's plan. But the question is, are you on the right side of history or the wrong side of history? Are you acknowledging the ultimate sovereign, Jesus, as sovereign over your life? Or are you living to a secular agenda and living with yourself, being your own boss? This Christmas, acknowledge the ultimate Savior. Come on the right side of history. Live for and honor the God who did everything for you 2,000 years ago. And he's still ruling and reigning in the throne. His kingdom's advancing. And let that peace pervade in your soul. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the Christmas account that tells us that you're on the throne, tells us that you reign and rule supreme, and tells us that through Jesus we can have salvation and a new life. God, we celebrate you this Christmas. We give thanks to you for being the authentic Savior of the world. You are the true King who brings peace. You are the one who even takes the negatives of life and uses them to your glory and to our advantage. We honor you tonight. We submit to you and to your authority. In God's presence, I want to give you an opportunity just to pray back your response to him just now. Take these moments, just as the music's playing, to pray your own prayer. Respond to him. Maybe some of these verses or some of these thoughts have stirred you in some ways then don't just hear stuff. Talk to him about it. Make some decisions in his presence. Commit yourself afresh to him. While people are praying, let me give you an opportunity this evening. If you're here tonight and you don't yet have a relationship with God, tonight God's here and he loves you. Why not make the greatest decision of your life? Put your faith in Jesus, the one who died for you and rose again, the one who is the true sovereign, the true king, and who deserves your allegiance. If that's you tonight, you're saying, Peter, I want God in my life, then pray this prayer with me just now. Under your breath, say, Dear Lord God, thank you for your love for me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me and for rising again. Thank you, you came into this world to save me. And tonight, I ask you to be my savior. I ask you to be my king. I believe in you this evening. Forgive me for my sins and give me a whole new start. Thanks for hearing my prayer and accepting me in your family. Keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer just there, just while everyone else's eyes are closed, I want to pray for you. In this auditorium, if, if you prayed that prayer, you're saying, that's me tonight, Pete. I prayed that prayer. That's the decision I'm making tonight. I want Jesus in my life. Then could you just let me know you prayed the prayer just by quickly slipping your hand in the air and then popping it down again. Is there anyone like that this evening? Just quickly put your hand up nice and clear so I can see you. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Before I pray, is there anyone else? tonight you're saying that's me wanting to follow Jesus tonight this is not you becoming religious or 
even committing to this church. You know, you're welcome, obviously, here, but this is about you and God. Is, is there anyone else before I pray? Is there anyone else just saying, that's me tonight? That's the decision I'm making. Okay. Dear God, thank you so much for this precious person in your presence. They have made the greatest decision of their lives. And for anyone else who tonight has prayed that prayer, I pray they would know your love, your total acceptance, your forgiveness, and the new start that you alone offer. Thank you, God. Amen. Before you go, I'll get one of the teams to come pray with you again. Let's stand. We're going to worship just as we close this time.